Welcome to A Reason for Hope. Glad you could join us. This is a weekday Bible answer program from 5 to 6 p.m. And I'm my name is Adrian Van Vactor, and I'm studio here with Pastor Scott Richards. Hey, Andrew, you're in. Great to be with you. <laughs> okay, you're your vocal cords warmed yes. up. <laughs> me, me, me. <laughs> yep. uh, so we're excited to be able to take your questions on the Christian worldview, on God's existence, uh, whether or not the Bible is historically accurate, or how do we apply uh, difficult passages or difficult to understand scriptures to our lives as believers. If you're a skeptic and you want to know how does uh, Christianity compare to other religions, or can I be a reasonable, truth-seeking individual and still believe or have faith? Is faith anti-intellectual? All kinds of questions. Those are just a few examples that you could ask. And of course, if you're seeing this right now, you're on one of our platforms, and we are streaming to uh, multiple <clears throat> different locations where you can engage with us live in real time. First of all, of course, we're live streaming to Facebook, and you can, uh, our Facebook handle is right there, so you just go to facebook.com forward slash at CCF Tucson, and you can uh, engage with us. We monitor all these platforms as we do the live stream. We can take your questions live on YouTube. Uh, if you do watch us on YouTube, we would really appreciate if you would subscribe and, of course, hit that notification bell. We live stream all of our services, special events, and this weekday program uh, to YouTube as well. And if you want to know what the actual handle is, it's at A Reason for Hope 546. If you want to engage with Pastor Scott, the senior pastor of Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, you can follow him on Twitter. And you can also engage and ask questions on Twitter that we can answer here on the program. <clears throat> and of course, that handle is at, scar, at Scott R4H. That's at Scott R4H on Twitter. We also live stream to our website. If you go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, and hit the Watch Live tab, you can actually uh, join our, our uh, services and engage with others who are watching at the same time, ask questions, and so on. And we, again, during this A Reason for Hope broadcast that we do every weekday from 5 to 6, we can engage and take your questions there. Uh, and if you want to engage and watch on our mobile app, we have an, a mobile app that you can download from the uh, Apple Store as well as the Google Play Store, Amazon Play Store, Roku, and that is just Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. You can find us on all those platforms. And if you want to be a little bit more anonymous and just kind of want to ask a question without necessarily being logged into your public profile at one of these platforms, then you can just email us directly at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope, all spelled out, no numbers, at gmail.com. So before we take your questions for today, I'd like to take a moment to uh, pray and ask the Lord to be with us as we uh, engage with everybody online. As we desperately need him to <laughs> be <laughs> yeah. with us today, sure. As, as always, yeah. Yeah. Father, I thank you that we have this opportunity to be able to seek you today. And uh, you said... In your word, you'll seek me and find me when you search for me with your whole heart. Uh, Lord, we pray that this wouldn't just be an intellectual exercise. We wouldn't just download information. But as we come to your word, we would realize that you have very special and specific things that you want to speak to us concerning our life. Lord, you say in your word that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We pray that that's what Adrian and I would share. Uh, that we would uh, tell your truth, the whole truth, and nothing but your truth as you give us the grace to do so. Thank you for this opportunity to be able to seek your face. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> so uh, 
I've spent a lot of time on the mission field engaging with various individuals, uh, public a lot of public events, a lot of college campuses. Most of my my work has been doing an illusion show where I'll stand on a college campus, do my presentation, share my story of how I was how I encountered Christ for the first time and just encourage students to uh, consider the basics of the gospel message and then end my show. And afterwards I typically do Q and A. And sometimes you get very, very uh, <clears throat> combative individuals. Most of the time people are friendly, even in places where we would consider the predominant faith is something other than a secular culture or a Christian uh, belief system or a Christian worldview of all various different religions, religions that dominate those different cultures and uh, are very uh, upset that someone would come from another country and talk about Jesus. But usually the way I, I frame it is, is usually accepted pretty well. But uh, <clears throat> someone emailed us a question and was wondering if you've been engaging with someone or dialoguing with someone for a long time, even a year, where <clears throat> at what point do we draw the line and say that there's a passage that talks about not casting your pearls before swine, the idea that um, it's, it, it, it's suggesting the idea that sometimes there are certain situations where you just don't really give it your effort. It's time to walk away. And how do you discern those kind of situations, Pastor yeah. Scott? Yeah, you know, uh, that uh, casting your pearls before swine, it's uh, such a familiar statement that it's almost uh, like a proverb or something you'd see in a fortune cookie. Uh, but uh, the first thing I think we need to understand is biblically, uh, where does this come from? And, and what is the context? And what is the Bible telling us when it uses that particular phrase? Because it's it certainly... Uh, does. Uh, interestingly, it starts out in a section of Scripture that I think is probably as familiar to non-believers as any part of the Bible could ever be. Uh, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged, for whatever judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And then immediately following this, Jesus says, do not give what is holy to dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, first blush, uh, we seem to have uh, a bit of a problem here because, uh, first of all, Jesus is saying, judge not, lest you be judged. Same judgment you'll mete out to others is going to be brought back uh, to you. Uh, take care of that speck in your own eye before you get uh, uh, the plank in your own eye before you get around to your brother's speck. But then, you know, after these statements that I think uh, some people take as saying, well, you shouldn't really be critical of anybody else. Uh, you shouldn't exercise any kind of uh, an, an idea that uh, what they say is right or wrong. You should just not judge. And, and boy, you talk about a uh, popular deflector shield uh, from dealing with people that might believe things about God themselves, the Bible, other things, uh, you know, morality. Uh, you know, it, it's the one that always comes up. You say, well, you know, you know God has a different point of view, say, on your sexuality. Oh, you're judging me, man. The Bible says don't judge. And, well, okay, yeah, the Bible does say don't judge. But uh, Jesus in John chapter 7 said judge with righteous judgment. 
In other words, we're not to be uncritical about spiritual issues. We're not to uh, fail to exercise critical thinking when people make truth claims about reality, about God, about this life, the afterlife, morality, the, the whole bit. We're not just supposed to say, oh, well, you know, whatever floats your boat. Your Which, truth, and that's yeah, you know, if that that works for you, and, and some people are based on this, but it's really interesting that this idea of don't give what is holy to dogs or cast your pearl before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. That statement, in and of itself, by Jesus, seems to insist on the fact that we exercise a measure of judgment when we deal, especially with those who are hostile to the faith. So, you know, what is this uh, don't judge uh, routine? Well, you know, I think maybe the best uh, category to put that in is attributing motive. Uh, we shouldn't judge in the sense that we know everything about a person and why they're saying what they're saying. Uh, we know the condition of their heart. Only God knows the conditions of the heart. Uh, but we can judge, say, what's being said and what's being advocated there. And when we judge what a person is saying, uh, and we present God's word, their reaction can often tell the story about what's really going on in the human heart. God's word, we are told, is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart in the book of Hebrews chapter 4. And so when we share it, people will have a reaction. They will tend to put their, their cards on the table. Sometimes that's a good thing. Uh, sometimes people will say things like, Oh, you know, I, you know, I've, I've always wanted to uh, understand, what, you know, what these born agains are all about. You know, can you help me with that? And and that's that's wonderful. But when someone starts getting angry and the smoke starts coming out of their ears and uh, the uh, vocabulary starts going down to the four letter variety mm -hmm. more than anything else, well, some people believe that we have an obligation at that point to continue to engage. And I guess based on how tough your skin is or <laughs> how much you enjoy a uh, good verbal Donnybrook, uh, if you want to go ahead and do that, have at it. But what Jesus is saying is, is that there does come a time where people will show that their heart is in a place that you're really wasting your time and their time by continuing to pursue a conversation. Not every person who asks us a spiritual question is really looking for an answer. You know, and a great example of this is found in the book of Luke, chapter 23. We are told uh, during the, uh, the, the political hot potato game that uh, Jesus had become between Pilate and Herod. Neither of them wanted to deal with them, but uh, Pilate was like, oh, I've got to find somebody else to, to deal with this. And he found out that Jesus was a Galilean. Uh, so uh, from Nazareth originally, so that's Pi that's Herod's jurisdiction. I'll send him over to Herod and have Herod examine him. You know, just get out of my hair. I've got bigger things to do. Well, uh, you know, again, uh, as soon as he knew that uh, Jesus was a Galilean, uh, he, that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. Luke 23 and verse 8 says, Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad for he desired for a long time to see him because he'd heard many things about him and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words. Now catch this, but he answered him nothing. Now, 
That seems uh, a little out of character based upon, you know, our idea of contending for the faith and, and so on. And we're told the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod and his men of war treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous road and sent him back to Pilate. So why doesn't Jesus answer Herod's questions? Why doesn't Jesus, uh, you know, do a miracle for him? Well, because he knew Herod's heart. And the fact that he didn't answer pretty soon caused Herod's heart to be on display with everyone else. Uh, his seeker sensitivity quickly degenerated into open mockery and, and even violence uh, that followed all of that. So, you know, I guess what it comes down to is this. Uh, to everything, there's a season and a time for every purpose under heaven, King Solomon wrote. There is a time to give an answer, and then there is a time to be silent. Okay, hmm. How do you discern the difference? Well, uh, there's uh, a few ways that I think that we can do it. And, and maybe the best way to do it, I believe, is following the example of Jesus. You know, Jesus could communicate more by asking a question than, uh, or at least on the same level, than, than, you know, downloading some information. And he often taught by asking questions and getting people to think through their own conceptions and so on with his own disciples remember he said uh, who do people say that i the son of man am well disciple happy to give a little marketing uh, research oh yeah we listen to the crowd some people think you're john the baptist back from the dead some people like you're you're jeremiah because your messages are really heavy and convicting you know they think that uh, you know you're elijah because you do miracles or or one of the prophets and then jesus says, but who do you say that I am. How about you guys? Yeah, you know, again, in John chapter 14, uh, you know, Jesus uh, said, you know, have I been with you so long, Philip, that you have not known me? Um, you have seen me, has seen the Father. And, and you know, there's this idea of using questions to get down to the, the hard issues that are involved there was something very uh, much, as Gail Irwin uh, in his great book would say, the Jesus style. Mm -hmm. and, and so when I'm in that situation, and you're engaging, uh, you know, uh, again, uh, my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean, uh, has a rule. He calls it the, the three strikes and you're out rule. Uh, you know, if someone starts to become aggressive or starts using foul language or, or starts uh, trying to attribute, oh, you're just, uh, you know, you know uh, horrible, awful, and, you know, name the, uh, the, the woke uh, designation for someone that should just absolutely be cast out of society. You know, he will say, okay, um, you know, uh, I just need to understand where you're coming from on all of this. Uh, you know, could you clarify this? And if they just come back with more invective, he'll say, well, that's strike two. You got another strike coming, but that's it. And if they persist, then he'll just say, look, uh, we're not getting anywhere positive in this conversation. I think that's a good rule of thumb for me. Uh, one of the uh, rules of thumb that I tend to use uh, is this, as far as asking a question goes, especially if the conversation starts getting a little uh, uptight and uh, a little uh, accusatory or, or inflammatory. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll ask him a question. Why are you so angry? You know, what, what is it about talking about God and about the person of Jesus that, that makes you so angry? And, you know, I, I can remember uh, the first time that the Lord led me, I think, to use this technique 
was uh, when I had the opportunity to uh, be able to share with uh, the physical therapist who was working with me after I tore ligaments in my knee. Uh, you know, the, the only legalized form of torture still allowed, I think, at least overtly in the United States, uh, has got to be physical therapy. And, and I was going through some pretty intense physical therapy because uh, I wanted to repair my knee so I could come back the next year and, and run track. Well, the guy who was working with me uh, you know, we have conversations and found out he found out I was a Christian and man, he would just start peppering me with questions and, you know, well, what about evolution? And uh, how can you say there's a good God when people suffer and not, you know, all this stuff. And, and I try to answer his questions, but I could see he had really very little patience in terms of listening to an answer. It was more or less, uh, you know, shut up. He explained, hmm. uh, kind of a thing. And so, you know, one day we were getting involved with that and he started getting angry and upset about that. And I just said, well, you know, Ken, um, you know, I, I've noticed that every time we start to talk about spiritual things or you, you ask me spiritual questions, uh, you know, you really get upset. Um, is there been like someone in your life who was a Christian that really kind of did you wrong? And he looked at me like he'd seen a ghost. And he mm -hmm. said, well... You got to understand, I, I grew up in a really religious home. Uh, my mom insisted that we go to church every Sunday. And I'm kind of thinking, well, you know, that's pretty hyper-religious right there. And, and <laughs> I kind of laughed. He goes, no, she meant it. And she said, I, he said, I hated going to church. And so what I do is I'd get up at five in the morning and I'd sneak out my window and run away in the morning and uh, then come back after everybody got home from church. So I wouldn't have to go. Hmm. And I went, oh, that's, you know, sounds like a plot from Leave it to Beaver or something. And, and then he said, but my mom put an end to that. Every Saturday night, she would physically tie me up in bed so I couldn't sneak out my window. Wow. And I'd have to go to church. And he's like shaking at this point. And he just looked at me and he says, if that's what your God is all about, I don't want to have anything to do with him. Mm -hmm. And I looked at him and said, well, Ken, if that's what God was all about, I wouldn't want to have anything to do with him. Mm. But that's not how he is. And, and, and the thing that was so educational for me about that, and I never forgot that experience, was this. You know, I could have gotten out my handy Christian apologist, heathen killers, uh, sharp, uh, uh, you know, witty uh, responses to non-believers, and I could have answered every one of his questions. I could have had evidence that demands a verdict, and in chapter and verse on all all the tough questions he was asking, but it wouldn't have made a single bit of difference because his objection to Christianity wasn't intellectual. It wasn't a question of the mind. It was a question of the emotions. It was a question of deep-seated personal hurts, and if you don't find out where that objection is coming from, uh, you know, you can really be spinning your wheels. And some people, uh, again, to his credit, my physical therapist was open to telling me his story. Mm. But some people won't tell you that story. You know, they're going to keep their cards to themselves, maybe because they think you're another one of those religious weirdos and you're going to do them more damage or harm, or, or, or maybe they just got a sin area in their life that they really want to hold on to or, or, or maybe, um, you know, they just, their particular tribe gets their jollies out of trying to, uh, ruin the faith of Christians. So there could be a lot of motivations mm -hmm. there, but if they don't put their motivations on, on the table, you know, there does come a time where I think you have to say, well, it's very clear to me 
that uh, this isn't a, a spiritual issue. It's not even an intellectual issue. It's a personal issue. Mm. Uh, and, and one of the a great diagnostic question you can use to find out if that's in fact the case is if, uh, say, a non-believer is like peppering you with, uh, you know, that, well, what about this? And what about evolution? And what about bad things and good people? And what about, you know, all the errors in the Bible and all this stuff? Just pick one of those questions out of the air. And, uh, and you can say to them, hey, look, if I were to answer that question to your satisfaction, would you consider becoming a Christian? And in my experience, 90% of the time, they'll say, well, no. And you'll say, well, then I think we've just learned something here. Your objection to Christianity isn't a question of the mind. It's a question of the will. It's not that you, uh, won't, uh, you, you can't believe in Jesus. It's that you won't believe in Jesus that's the issue. Do you really think that that's the best way to find truth? And kind of leave that question hanging there. And, you know, who knows how God can use that kind of a penetrating question. And the other thing I would say is God's word never returns to him void. Um, I can remember a lot of conversations I had with Christians before I got saved where they would say, well, I don't know about any of that, but, you know, the Bible says uh, that no one comes to God but through Jesus. And they would quote a scripture to me. And it was really funny. It would kind of work almost like a gospel time bomb in, in my life. Because I'd kind of mock them and laugh and walk away. But, you know, it would all, might be a week later or something like that. I'd have one of those times where I'd wake up at 2 in the morning. And this, what they said would come back to me. And this horrible thought would cross my mind. Well, what if they're right? Mm. You know, I didn't know that was the Holy Spirit working on me at that point. Honoring his word. But that's what happens. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So, you know, what's successful evangelism then you know where can you say well i've done my job you know anything more is casting pearls before swine just giving an opportunity for someone to turn Mm -hmm. and attack you you know i think if we compassionately but without compromise tell people what god's word has to say about that and say oh you know you're just quoting the bible there's a a famous uh pastor or tv pastor who's kind of gotten knee deep by saying oh you just can't tell people the bible says uh, anymore and it's really kind of created a, a big dust up on the internet and we can talk more about that if if people are inclined I guess you're right but, to. but uh but anyway uh you know the, the the bottom line though is god's word is powerful and people know it's powerful and uh, even if they come from a background where they go, oh, well, you know, some guy in college told me it was all a bunch of myths, mm. doesn't matter. God's still going to honor his word. And so if we compassionately but without compromise tell people what God's word has to say, well, there's a couple of things here. You know, first of all, we're telling them, look, I'm not here to win an argument. I'm here to tell you the truth. And whether you want to accept that or reject that, that that's, that's up to you. Well, well that's your truth, man. You know, my truth might be different. Well, consider this possibility. What if God really has spoken to us? You know, what if he walked among us in the person of Jesus and proved it by rising from the dead? Mm. Wouldn't you want to know what he had to say? You know, and, and again, if they just blow their top and start screaming and yelling four-letter words at you, that's pearls before swine time. Mm. You know, and, and you, you're not uh, obligated to let somebody, you know, just abuse you 
verbally or personally in those set of circumstances. But if we compassionately and without compromise tell people what God has to say, we don't preach ourselves, uh, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we bring the issue back to Jesus. Their mm-hmm. conflict, you see, isn't with me. It's right. not with you. Yeah. It's ultimately with Jesus. And a lot of people don't realize that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, Jesus, he's cool. You know, uh, you know, I think he's a good teacher. Wow, fantastic. What do you think about what he taught? You know, and, and if you can challenge people to think in those terms, then I think we're getting somewhere. But some people will not let you get to that point. And if you do get to that point where you feel like you've compassionately and without compromise focus the conversation on the person of Jesus uh, and, and the person still blowing up to say, well, look, you know, I don't think we're getting much of anywhere right now. If you want to talk about this further, you know, when you calm down, great. Or to deal with whatever stereotypes falsely believed yeah. the individual might have. I heard one, someone put it this way. Our responsibility as communicators, as God's people, is to clear the bushes so that an individual might have an unobstructed view of Jesus. Yeah. Remove yeah. every stumbling block except that of Christ. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. But, you know, I, I, I think the, the other downside of ignoring that, that there does come a time where you can honestly say, thus far and no farther, is that some people who have gone down that path and mm-hmm. have just subjected themselves to that kind of, you know, vile and, inve- you know, vile and invective and so on, uh, you know, they'll say, oh, man, I'm never going to share my faith again. It was such a mm. negative experience. And so you see the spiritual strategy there. The wicked one can neutralize people mm. if we don't realize uh, that we can't have boundaries with people and that, mm. that we are just here to represent Jesus. And if we do that, then we've done our job. And we're not being spiritually uh, unfaithful because we do draw that line. Yeah, and you know, and the other thing that I would say along that line is that uh, sometimes we can be so relentlessly perfectionistic about ourselves. Mm-hmm. We want to be the hero of every story. Uh, we want to close every spiritual deal. You know, <laughs> we we want to be the person who reached that person who couldn't be reached with the message of Jesus. Uh, and you know, a lot of it is ego. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is I I want to win. You know, I want to I want to get over on this other person and. God doesn't really honor that. Mm-hmm. We got to be careful about our motives personally in in those kind of interactions. Do I care about that person understanding mm-hmm. who Jesus is, or am I just trying to to burnish my armor a little bit and uh, you know uh, have my my credentials spiritually mm-hmm. uh, you know a little bit uh, higher up on on the echelon? You know, we we got to be careful about that for sure. But the other thing is this, and this is kind of a humbling thing. Um, I have never saved anyone, you know, and, and people go, whoa, you must really be a lousy pastor. Well, no, Jesus is the only one who saves people. I can tell them what Jesus would like to do for them, Mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, faith in Jesus, faith in his life, death and resurrection is what saves. He's the one who can make us born again. Just Mm -hmm. because I win an argument doesn't mean I've won the war because the old saying is true. A man convinced mm-hmm. against his will is of the same opinion still. You know, they can walk away and go, oh, that guy turned really, but I still don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, we can pat ourselves on the back for winning, you know, the, the verbal battle, but mm-hmm. have we lost the war? Is that yeah. person one step closer to Jesus? or is it, So, Roman Sten does not say faith comes by hearing how 
well articulate and persuasive Adrian is. Yeah, yeah, and and and, and again, we got to have balance there because uh, one of the main reasons that we do this broadcast and it's called a reason for hope is we want you to be able to give a reason for hope to everyone who asks you mm. for the hope, the reason for the hope that you have within you with meekness and reverence. But I think that's where that meekness and reverence comes in. Meekness means power under control. Gentle. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that I just blast away just because I can, but notice reverence is a part of that as well. Mm. Reverence means I'm doing this because, Lord, you want me to do this, mm. and I'm sharing with this person, and, Lord, give me the grace to share with them like you'd share with them. If, if you were here, may I represent you properly in all of this. And, uh, you know, and I think if we keep those things in mind, we're going to be all right. Yeah, good, good, good insight and uh, very, very good question, uh, one that I think many of us um, struggle with. And thank you so much, Pastor Scott. Uh, someone had uh, on our YouTube channel asked a really, uh, a really penetrating question, I think, and uh, they're asking, it's a two-part question. The first part of the question is, is God in three persons co-equal? Uh, and then the second part of the question is, what scripture would you read to someone that is dying to comfort them? So that's uh, from Mac D on our YouTube channel. Thank you, Mac, for engaging with us. And so first question is, uh, is God in three persons co-equal? And what does that even mean? Yeah, well, uh, the high flute term means, uh, you know, when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, let's go back and, and talk a little bit about that. Uh, you know, some people will say, well, you know, the word Trinity isn't in your Bible. Well, you're precisely correct. What the word Trinity is, is a shorthand for a number of truth statements that we do find in the Bible about God. Uh, first of all, we discover in the Bible that there is one and only one God in what is called the Shema uh, in the Jewish circles. The most important statement in Judaism, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, we hear, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Uh, the book of Isaiah says, uh, God speaking, is there any other God? I know not one. Uh, in, in other words, there's only one God out there, and you and I aren't him. That's probably a good place to start. There's one God. But interestingly, in that statement that we find in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, uh, the, uh, the, the phrase, hear, O Lord, the Lord, hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Uh, the word one is fascinating in the original language because mm -hmm. there's two words in Hebrew right. that can be translated one. One is the word yakid, uh, which means one and only one. You know, for instance, if I were to hold up this cell phone and say, I have one cell phone in my hand, um, I would use the word yakid because there's one and only one. But there's another word in Hebrew that refers to a compound unity. In other words, if I were to look at a uh, parking lot full of cars, I would say there is a parking lot. There's one parking lot there full of cars. I would use the word akad as a compound unit. If we said there's one flock of sheep, right? We would use that word mm. akad because it refers to a oneness that is composed of more than one uh, individual character, if you it, will. It allows for a multiplicity. Yeah. Sense. Yeah. And, and, and so... Interesting, the scripture says uh, that there's one God, but it allows for 
this idea of a number of persons within the oneness, which is the one true and living God. And as the scripture unfolds, we see more and more pieces of that puzzle come together. You know, for instance, Jesus himself uh, saying, he who has seen me has has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. You go to John chapter 5, and Jesus just goes down the line uh, about uh, you know the fact that he should be called the Son of God. Uh, his critics were enraged with him uh, because by saying that he was the Son of God, he was making himself equal with God. But then Jesus just goes down the list and says, well, you know, even as the Father uh, raised the dead, so I raised the dead. Uh, God, uh, the Father has entrusted all judgment to me. Uh, you know, uh, you know the uh, the things that the Father does, I do in like manner. And so, what Jesus was saying is this: there is an equality of essence, uh, essential characteristic, if you will, of uh, of the members of the Trinity. In other words, you have God the Father, you have God the Son, and you have God the Holy Spirit. As the Scripture describes these three members of this oneness, which is the one true and living God, and all of them are co-equal as God. Now, the interesting thing is, within that essential unity, there is also a distinction of persons. Now, I I hope I haven't let the the haze isn't falling over people's eyes. All three persons are equally God, equally divine, all equally share in all of God's attributes. But are distinct in personality. Hmm. How do we know this? Well, maybe the, the great, uh, one of the great examples of this was when Jesus himself was baptized. Hmm. Uh, we hear, we read in the, in the Gospel of uh, Matthew chapter 3 that when Jesus was baptized, Jesus himself came up out of the water, uh, the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descended upon him, and a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So here you see a distinction of persons within the oneness, which is God. You have Jesus, God the Son, being baptized. You have the distinction of the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove, and you have the Father speaking from heaven. So there's a distinction there, mm. but there's a unity. Maybe one of the great scriptures that puts all of this together in as, as brief uh, a summation as possible is the famous Great Commission passage in Matthew mm. chapter 28. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Sounds like God to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that, that's a, a pretty heavy statement to make. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, singular right. Right. of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I didn't say in the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Some cult groups will say, well, you Christians, you teach that there's three gods out there. That mm-hmm. and, uh, Muslims will say that. No, we say there is one God, but in that oneness that is God, there is that multiplicity, if you will, the, the, the triunity of persons. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. The Son's not the Spirit. The Father's not the Spirit. They are distinct in person, but one in essence as God. Uh, even last Sunday in uh, Acts chapter 5, uh, Simon Peter uh, bringing a guy named Ananias on the spiritual carpet said, you know, why has Satan entered your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. Mm. 
Now, some people say, well, the Holy Spirit's just sort of a, the, 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 the uh, energy of God or it's the, 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 the essence or something. Well, you can't lie to energy, can you? You can't lie to electricity, mm-hmm. but you can lie to a person. So the Holy Spirit's a yeah. person. The Holy Spirit's God. Jesus is a person. He claimed the attributes of God. He says, he who's seen me has seen the Father. Mm-hmm. Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, Yahweh, is one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Father is God. And so when we teach the doctrine of the Trinity, we don't teach it because it's easy. We don't teach it because it's simple. We teach it because it encapsulates all of the things that the Bible has to say about the nature of God. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that way, you know, we say, well, you know, the uh, God is triune or the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity. That way we don't have to go back and forth and, and cite all these scriptures and then say, take a deep breath and say, and then that same God, you know, when, when we talk about the Trinity, that's the advantage of being able to have a statement like that. So is it fair to say that what God is, <clears throat> singular, one, one essence, one being, but when we talk about who God is, three persons. Right. And, and each of those persons has a different role to play in our salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, we were told it was God's predestined plan that made salvation uh, available to us. It had given the potential. It was Jesus' death on the cross that made salvation practical, uh, paying the price mm-hmm. for our sins. And it's the Holy Spirit who causes us to believe and make our salvation personal. You can read through the first 13 verses of Ephesians chapter 1 and get all of that. So, so Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, as like in the book of Revelation, how does that, um, how would you explain that in terms of persons versus? Yeah, um, yeah, and, and, and that's, a, that's a great question because people say, well, they're one in essence is God. And that was, by the way, Max's yeah, follow-up question. And, and they're, they're co-equal as God. Is there a demarcation of of role or authority mm. in the members of the Trinity. Well, the Bible says yes. Mm. Uh, you know, it's really interesting. In uh, uh, John chapter 10, uh, we are told in verse 28, and I give them eternal life, Jesus speaking here, and they shall never perish, uh, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Uh, so, you know, there's those that say, well, you know, I was just saying that, God the Father is greater than any other create any created being in the universe, but uh, you know Jesus looked at the Father and said He's greater than I am. So how do we put that together? Well, the word "greater" there carries the idea of administrative function. It doesn't have anything to do with essence. Hmm. You know, a great an analogy of this is you know you uh, go to Davis Monthan Air Force Base and you'll see an Air Force general and you'll see an airman, right? Um, that Air Force general has quite a bit of authority over that airman, right? But he's no more of a human being than that airman is. They Mm. share the same essence as a human being, but they have a different function Mm. to uh, exercise, a different level of authority that they have in terms of accomplishing the mission of what Davis Mountain Air Force Base is all about. So that's why Jesus was able to talk, uh, use language about him being obedient to the Father, only doing what the Father wills him to do, or what right. he sees his Father doing. So it doesn't mean that he's not equal to the Father in the uh, essential sense, but rather that administrative role. There is a hierarchy that yeah. God has put and, in place, and it's interesting how that uh, even uh, God trying, I think, uh, to make this 
put the cookies on the bottom shelf where the kitties can get at them. Um, <laughs> even communicates that same truth in the marriage relationship. Hmm. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, again, a husband and a wife are made one flesh by God. They're absolutely equal in all ways. But in passages like Ephesians chapter five, we discover that they have differential roles to play within the relationship. No one is more superior and no one is less uh, is, is inferior, but we have a different job to do. Hmm. So following up on Matt, thank you, Mac, for those questions. I hope that I hope it was helpful for you. Uh, but his uh, last question is just a real quick passage, a scripture that you would share if someone is, um, been deemed to be passing, that their life is coming to an end, but they're able to be communicated with. This happens a lot with people who are dying of cancer and various things where it's not sudden. They know that the end is coming. Uh, what, what scriptures would uh, you recommend to someone to share someone in that? Position? You know, I, I think uh, sometimes in, in that situation, I, and I guess it depends on the situation. Uh, if you're with somebody and they're still conscious and they're getting ready to go, uh, one of the most important things, I think, to communicate to somebody is what it means to be saved, to give them the opportunity, even at that late moment, to, to make a decision to receive Christ. Um, you know, I think about my own dad's passing and, uh, and uh, how he had uh, made a decision to receive Christ as a result of uh, just a, an amazing uh, divine intervention that God had in terms of healing his uh, cancer. And, uh, you know, the, it, it was really a profound thing. But when he was passing away a few years afterwards, you know, I had an opportunity to be with him uh, shortly before he went into a coma. And, you know, and I said to him, you know, Dad, you know, if you've made your peace with God, uh, you know, if you understand that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead, you know, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Uh, if you made that decision to put your faith in Jesus, would you just squeeze my hand? He was intubated at that time, couldn't mm. speak. Mm. You know, and, and he grabbed my hand. He squeezed my hand. And, you know, and I think maybe that was more for my benefit than for his. But if there's a situation that we have, Adrian, where uh, if, uh, and, and Mac, if, if we're wondering about where that person is, Boy, take that opportunity to share God's word. People say, mm. well, do you believe in deathbed uh, conversions? Well, the thief on the cross sure did. Mm. And, and it seemed to work then. Yeah. So anything's possible. Mm -hmm. uh, but if uh, it's a person who knows the Lord, so a person that, uh, that uh, you know, maybe struggling a little bit, maybe feeling fearful, um, you know, sometimes those really basic scriptures like Psalm 23, can really be powerful because it's it's the setting that you're in, not necessarily the the scripture that you share, uh, that that really can cause a passage in God's word to become very very powerful. Mm. You know, just saying to somebody, "The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want." He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear mm. no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, you comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Mm. Um, you know, just sharing that with somebody can really 
make a huge difference. I mean, there's others. Uh, John 14, Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Uh, you know, just sharing that with somebody in that that moment is is really key because the Lord, through that scripture and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, can minister that word to their hearts in a very, very powerful way. You know, I you know, I I can go on and on about comforting verses. Uh, you know, I think about uh, Psalm ninety one: He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, my rock, my fortress, my God in whom I trust, it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and the deadly pestilence. For he will cover you with his feathers, and in the shadow of his wings you may find refuge. And you can just pray, Lord, please help you know, my brother or sister here to find their refuge in the shadow of your wings right now. Um, you know, those simple scriptures can be really powerful. Would you add any to that? Well, I liked what you said at first about <clears throat> reaffirming the gospel, and I think you can do that with a believer too. I, I think if if I were in that situation and I knew the end was coming, I would, I think I would take great joy in just reiterating to re-listening to uh, what gives us hope. And so I think that as much as it would um, be helpful to a someone who does not know the Lord, uh, just having that comfort there with that, and and it is very situational. Um, sometimes you can maybe share scriptures that are really, really reflective of the person's life, what they did. Uh, several of my very close mentors have passed away. Um, seems like everyone has. I've lost so many people who really poured into my life in the last four years. Yeah. <clears throat> it's, it's been kind of a interesting time, hasn't it? It yeah. has. Uh, by the way, uh, pa- uh, right, right when the pandemic started, Pastor Scott did a series of teachings on Psalm 23, so I'd encourage you to go to our website and uh, go to the sermon archives, uh, and you can listen to all those messages. Were uh, very, very uh, great, great material. Yeah, it was right after my cancer surgery. So definitely, the Lord gave me a, a very a deep perspective and an appreciation for mm-hmm. Psalm twenty-three. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have a little bit of time for a few more, maybe uh, quick questions. And someone asked one that. Uh, I've I've been fascinated with that I've dealt with over the years and um, and this is from and I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try not to butcher your name but I probably will fail. Uh, Adenie. Adenie. Yeah. Adenie. Our Akin, our good friend yeah, from from, uh, from uh, Nigeria. Uh, thank you so much for listening in. They would like to know if Satan can read your our minds or know our thoughts. Um, the short answer is no, he cannot. And there's a couple reasons for that out of knee. Uh, the, the first reason that we can know that Satan can, can't know our thoughts or doesn't know our thoughts is number one, he's not omniscient. He wants us to think that he is equal with God, but he is not omniscient. He doesn't know, uh, the, the hearts and the thoughts. And it's interesting how, uh, in Jeremiah, we are told, I, the Lord am the one who searches the hearts. Uh, and uh, that seems to be the exclusive province of God. Uh, another really interesting insight into this is in the book of Job. Uh, in Job chapter 1 and verse 6, we are told there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, from walking back and forth on it. Well, another interesting insight into the 
fact that Satan is not equal with God. He's not omnipresent. He has to walk back and forth on the earth to figure out what's going on. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and around his household and around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. Well, you know what happened. Satan basically came and took away every material possession Job had, including uh, his children. Uh, They ended up uh, dying in tragic circumstances along that line. And how fascinating, we are told that uh, Job tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. So guess what? Satan was wrong. You know, Satan thought he had Job all figured out, but he couldn't have been farther from the truth. Now, Satan, don't get me wrong, is an expert on human nature. He's been studying us for 6,000 years or so and has a pretty good idea of what makes us tick and what rebellion against God is and, and how to gin that up. But he can only work on us from the outside in. He can't work on us from the inside out. First John chapter 4 and verse 4 says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. For greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Uh, there's an unfortunate strain of teaching that gets going in Christian circles uh, that says that, uh, you know, you can have demonic entities, uh, you know, holding on to you or, or getting into your heart, and you need to have them cast out if uh, you're going to really get anywhere in your Christian life. Well, couple things. First of all, uh, nowhere in the Bible do we ever see, as far as dealing with the persistent sin or anything like this in our lives, uh, is exorcism ever suggested as the way to deal with it? Oh, you got a problem with the lust of the flesh? Well, cast that demon of lust out of you. It's just not there. The other thing that's, uh, that's really interesting in, in all of this is what 1 John 4, 4 says. It says that the one who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Satan can work from the outside in, not from the inside out. Don't underestimate him because he's a master manipulator. He doesn't necessarily have to be possessing us to get us to believe wrong things about ourselves, wrong things about God, wrong things about a relationship with God, wrong things about what God wants for our lives, and lead us, in a sense, down the primrose path. Very, very good at that and shouldn't be underestimated. But it's always from the outside in, not from the inside out. Hmm. I've never considered that passage in Job as a, as a good argument for Satan not actually knowing what we're thinking, what, what we know in our minds. It's well, he certainly good. misread Job he said, twice. <laughs> he even tried to up the ante and said, well, you take away his health. Then he'll surely curse you to your face. Even Mrs. Job agreed, you still hold your integrity, curse God and die. And Job said, Shall we accept good and not bad things from the hand of God? Uh, you know, you know. Again, uh, just the, the the beauty of uh, of of uh, this, and it says, "In all this, Job didn't sin with his lips." Hmm. 
I always like that uh, passage in First Corinthians chapter two, where it talks about not no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has even conceived of what God has planned for those who love Him, and He has revealed Him to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Yeah. So the idea is that the only uh, the immaterial part of who we are, our, our true selves, only knows our inner thoughts. Of course, God does too, but uh, except for that, you know, that spirit in us. And so you'd have to suggest that Satan uh, would have to be in all of us, or at least those whose minds he's reading. Yeah, or have that kind of access. But the Bible says that's not the case. Right. And, and that's such an important thing because, boy, I'll tell you, I've seen so many people uh, just get caught up in a fear based uh, Christian walk because they're just absolutely certain that some demonic entity is going to take over and latch onto them. And, oh my gosh, I saw a billboard with a, with a kind of a racy picture on it. And now that demon has latched onto me and, and so on. And, and you just read these, these well-intentioned, but really unhelpful books mm-hmm. on uh, spiritual deliverance where you have to pray through uh, 10 steps of deliverance, but you got to pray them in the right order because if you don't pray them in the right order, mm. then that, uh, uh, that uh, besetting demon isn't going to come out of you. And people say, well, but I experienced this and this and this. Well, what did you really experience? Mm. You know, you might have had an experience, but remember something, Satan is a master deceiver and he can deceive us on the basis of our experience, but the word of God will never lead us astray. Where do they get some of these ideas like, if I'm struggling with lust, then I have the spirit of lust. If I'm struggling with alcoholism, then I have the spirit of alcoholism, and we need to cast that spirit out of you. Is this just a spiritualized way of talking, or do people really mean that they believe there is a spirit that is like in charge of alcoholism and is going around tapping people on the shoulder going, you're an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic? Is it, you know The idea in these deliverance ministries is that you know, you just take one little step and you open the door and you give Satan a foothold into your life. They use this kind of language. Yeah. To just, you know, like, for example, if I watch movies that uh, depict occult practices, just by watching a film depicting the occult practices, I've now allowed a spirit to come into my home, into my life, and now I'm going to, my children are going to start misbehaving. I'm going to be struggling with all kinds of yeah, yeah, dark yeah. and, and, and the, <laughs> it goes and on list, and on. And the list obviously goes on. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. Sometimes uh, these doctrines get built on a pretty, you know, flimsy uh, kind of uh, of a footing. Uh, you know, in the book of Ephesians, uh, we are told, "Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil." And they go, "Ah, see, you can give place to the devil in your life. You can invite him in, and and you know, like you say, in in the 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 the, the most accidental kind of well, oh, you gave place to the devil." within your life. Well, the, the, the word place there just means a strategic uh, place to carry out a military campaign. That's the idea in the original language. Mm. And, and so if we don't deal with our anger and we let anger start to deal with us, well, Satan from the outside goes, man, this is perfect. This guy's a hothead. I'm going to bring all kinds of things into his life that he's going to be a hothead about. And pretty soon his witness is going to be completely destroyed. You know, that's why the Bible says deal with your anger before it deals with you. Don't let the sun go down on it. You know, through the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, allow the Lord through the fruit of the Spirit to replace that anger with a spirit of gentleness and meekness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, they, they they will people will take these passages 
and they will read into these passages. And, and I think it kind of comes down to uh, an important insight on good Bible study. If what we say about what it means to give place to the devil, right, uh, is based upon experience, it's based upon going to a meeting where everybody threw up in a bucket, uh, it's, it's based upon someone saying, oh, well, you know, I asked this demon to come out of me and I experienced this result. Okay, yeah, but when we say give place to the devil, is there any other scripture that tells us that it is impossible for these demonic entities to lightly possess us, demonize us, mm-hmm. if you will. Lightly possessed, isn't that like being a little bit pregnant? Yeah. I you know, either you kind of are kinda or you saved. aren't. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> but, um, but when we look at that and we look at a clear passage, like 1 John 4, 4, uh, where it says, greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. 1 John chapter 5, mm. where it says, uh, you know, you, everyone who's been born of God, you know, is walking with God and the devil does not grasp onto him, literally lay hold of him. Uh, in other words, this idea of uh, having a squatter demon, as I heard it described, <laughs> in some area of your life that's not yielded to Christ, uh, it just doesn't line up according to Scripture. So what we say about one passage of Scripture, and this is one thing I love about the Bible, we say, okay, that's a possible theory, kind of like the old uh, Columbo thing. You know, that's, an int- that's a good theory, mm-hmm. but I got one problem with that. There's other parts of the Scripture that absolutely preclude that conclusion. So we got to have the whole counsel, whole counsel of, of God. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for tuning in, and thanks for those great questions. If we didn't get to your question today, we apologize, but we do uh, log those down, and we will get to them later on this week. So we'll see you next time, same place, same time. God bless you. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.